All right, I, trust me, I ain't gonna start singing on this podcast because I know y'all would just hit exit and I don't want you to do that. But what is popping, everybody? Yo, we reading from the book of Jude today and we're doing a scripture study. I'm super excited to be doing a scripture study on Jude because it's one of them books that either you haven't read or when you did read, you just kind of skimmed through it or you didn't even know it was a book of the Bible like me for the longest time because it's such a small book. But before we hop into it, uh, real quick, share this with your friends and your family, anybody who you think could use some encouragement or anyone who is interested in learning more about the word of God, share this with your friends because look, the word of God is not meant to just be kept to ourselves, right? If you want to, I got my email address down in the description for the podcast. If y'all want to ask questions or, or if you have any concerns or if you have anything that you would love to talk about, yo, feel free to reach out. I would love to connect with y'all. And if y'all do want to support the podcast, there's a link in the description below as well. But we going from the book of Jude. And this is one of the shortest books in the Bible. <laughs> really small, really small. And it's easy to overlook. I'm gonna be honest with you. I think for me, the reason why I overlooked Jude for so long and I never really, you know, dived deep into it is because a lot of times, at least in my mind, I equate length with substance. And so because Jude is so short compared to all the other letters and books in the Bible, I just figured, oh, well, (laughs) it it must not be that important, right? It's short, so it must not have substance. I think another reason why I overlooked it, and maybe this is why you might overlook Jude as well, is because this is the book right before Revelations. And I mean, come on, let's be honest. If we scrolling through the Bible and we have to choose between Jude or reading a revelation about how the world going to end and all this crazy imagery, I mean, we're going to try and read Revelation because everyone wants to know how the world going to end, when it's going to happen. Oh, I bet it's 2020 when it's going to happen. I bet it's going to happen when so-and-so, you know, is the leader. And because of that, We can be so caught up on how the world's going to end that we miss over the book of Jude that teaches us how to live on earth now. And you know, we ought to listen to Jude. You want to know why? Because Jude was Jesus's brother. I I ain't talking about in the the friend type sense, like, yo, that's my dog. That's my bro. No, no. I mean, like, like for real, he was Jesus's half brother. And so what he has to say is really important. And Almost the majority of this book, which we're about to read through, it a big chunk of it is a warning about false teaching. Because believe it or not, there were a ton of people in this time that were preaching false doctrine, that were giving ideas about God and his grace and mercy that were completely wrong. And so there was a lot of false teaching happening in Jude's day. And what's crazy is, is that although this letter was not written to us, In a way, it kind of was because we still face the destructive anomaly, which is false teaching and false prophecy. So if we're not careful, we can get more invested in the the teachers of the Bible, right? Our, Our pastors and, you know, leaders, we can get more invested in the teachers of the Bible instead of the book that they're teaching, and so Jude's going to kind of clue us in on, on, on what's happening here. So let's start in verse one. Let's hop right into it. This letter is from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. But but Dante, if he is Jesus's brother, why does he not tell us? Well, little Timmy, that's a good question because I asked the same thing, right? I'm thinking, man, 
If, if Jesus is your brother, Jude, why did why didn't you let us know that? Like, like you're gonna start this letter off just talking about how you a slave for Jesus Christ, and then your brother is James. Ain't nobody care about James. We want to know about Jesus. So why did you hide the fact that you were the brother of Jesus? Because if it was me, right? <laughs> Y'all should thank God that I that I was not one of the writers of the Bible, because <laughs> the Bible would be so messed up <laughs> if I was. If this was me and I was Jude in this situation. Oh, I'll be telling everybody first verse. Hey, yo, what's up, y'all? This is Jude. <laughs> what it is. Hey, y'all know who I am, right? The brother of Jesus. <laughs> he, yes, sir. Jesus Christ. Not Jesus. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I'm the brother of Jesus. So all the miracles that he did, guess what? <laughs> I was there. <laughs> like I, w- I would be, I would be gloating so much about the fact that I was Jesus's brother, but that's exactly why he didn't. That's exactly why. He didn't mention that he was the brother of Jesus because Jude wanted us to focus more on Jesus instead of Jude. Jude wanted to show that his authority and his status as an apostle came from the fact that he was a slave of Jesus Christ and not a brother. You know, it doesn't say much about your character if the first thing that you bring up is how you should be how you should be upheld and loved and glorified because of Jesus. That doesn't look good for your character. Our stance should always be that Jesus is glorified first and that we serve him, not that we use Jesus to glorify ourselves. So he chose to illuminate the fact that his authority comes from the life-changing submission to Jesus Christ. He wasn't submitting to the sibling Jesus, but the Savior Jesus. So Jude is already starting us off on a good path. So he continues on. He says, I am writing to all who have been called by God the Father. So who is he writing this letter to? Everyone who has been called by God the Father, who loves you and keeps you safe in the care of Jesus Christ. Verse 2, may God give you more and more mercy peace, and love. What a way to start it off, Jude. Man, I'm telling you, a lot of these scripture studies that we started off with, it's always been like, like deep, like messed up stuff, like, like people stealing people's sacrifices and, and doing all this crazy stuff. But this is a good one. This starts off nice. He's reminding us something that we should be reminded of every day, that we are called by God, the father, and he loves us, keeps us safe in the care of Jesus Christ. And that God's will for us is to give us mercy peace and love. That's great. So let's go into verse three, because (laughs) that sentiment about the change, (laughs) he about to start swinging hands. He says, dear friends, I'd been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation we all share, but now I find that I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into the churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they have denied our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Like I said, like I said, here's where the boxing gloves comes out. Jew, Jew roll up and he ready to throw some hands because his original plan got put aside. I can understand how he might be frustrated. Notice his original plan. He tells us at the very beginning of verse three, his original plan was that he was eagerly planning to write about the salvation we all share. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that have been a great message? Like, wouldn't y'all have loved for Jude 
to have given his people a letter that just talks about the salvation that we receive through Jesus Christ. That would have been great. But notice what gets in the way of that. Jude has to do a complete 180 on what he was planning on writing so he can address false teaching. This right here sets the scene for how disruptive and destructive false teaching really is. See, this gives us an idea of how important it is for us on an individual level to know God's word instead of relying on someone else to tell you what it's supposed to say and what it's supposed to mean. I think that's really important for us because the trap that we can fall into, and I used to do this all the time, was the only time I learned anything about God or about the Bible was on Sunday when I was sitting in a chair in my church. And instead of growing in my walk with God by me actually doing what I'm supposed to be doing and reading the Bible, I just relied on someone else to do it for me. Now that's dangerous because as human beings, no matter how good we try, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to mess up. And sometimes there are people in places of leadership that do not have good intentions like you would hope. And if you're putting your eternity, your salvation, your entire relationship with God in the hands of one person once a week, then you're doing it wrong. God gave us the Bible. It's easily accessible. You can get it for free online. He gave us his word that tells us about him. And the least that we can do, if our eternity lies within the words of this book, the least that we can do is try and read it and try and understand it for ourselves. Instead of just relying on someone to tell us what it's supposed to mean. And this is how these people are falling into false teaching is that they don't know the scripture well enough to distinguish what's true and what's false. And so he's having to address these ungodly people who are preaching skewed doctrine. And I want to point out something interesting about these ungodly people who are, who are leading people astray. Because these people aren't necessarily people that deny God's existence. It never says that. These aren't, you know, people who go up to the pulpit and say, yeah, Jesus didn't die for us. God doesn't exist. He's not real. <laughs> you know, obviously that, that'd be clear to not listen to these people, but that's not what's happening. You have these, these ungodly people who obviously know scripture enough to be able to start planting false teachings here and there to lead people away. We can fall into this trap of thinking that the only dangerous people, the only people who could ever be in error are the ones who deny God exist. But it's clear that these teachers acknowledge God. They said that God's marvelous grace allows you to live immoral lives. So we can, we can at least deduct or deduce the fact that they acknowledge that God exists and they even use scripture. But somewhere along the way, their incorrect use or incorrect understanding of Scripture corrupted their beliefs. And so because of this, Jude tells us to defend the faith. This is important. He tells us to defend the faith. Notice that he doesn't say to let the faith take a back seat to culture. He doesn't say to let the faith just accept any attacks that come our way. See, here's the trouble I see in our society. 
and I think Jude is, is touching on this when he says defend the faith, is that we have created a culture that prioritizes acceptance over truth. We are in a culture that has become okay with diluting God's word so that others won't be defended. And we have to understand that the more we move the goalposts of God's words, the less we honor God. I get it. It's hard because there's some things that Jesus tells us we need to be doing that in our culture today would get you yelled at, might get you fired, might get you kicked out of your school. Some of the things that Jesus clearly teaches are wrong and sinful are the things that our society wants to hold up, but we cannot continue to move the goalposts of what is acceptable because the more that we do, we start honoring culture more than we honor God. And if we choose to continue to dilute the faith instead of defending the faith, we end up with false teaching like what Jude is having to deal with. Can I tell you something? Jesus didn't die so we can downplay his gospel. Mm. On to verse five. So I want to remind you, though you already know these things, that Jesus first rescued the nation of Israel from Egypt, but later he destroyed those who did not remain faithful. And I remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of authority God gave them, but left the place where they belonged. God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness, waiting for the great day of judgment. Now, what, what really interests me here is when he talks about in verse six about the angels who did not stay within the limits of authority that God gave them. That interests me. You know, some of us might read this and think, what does he talk about with these angels? Like, like where, where in scripture do, do we hear anything about angels defying what God said and, and, you know, going into places where they don't belong? Well, he's referencing Genesis six. In Genesis six, we hear about the sons of God who saw the daughters of man and they saw that they were beautiful. So they came on to them. They, they literally had sex with these women. I Trust me, I know it's weird. <laughs> Don't get mad at me. <laughs> I guess get mad at God. It's weird. I know. Um, and, and some will try and interpret the sons of God as the sons of Seth. Um, and, and I think the reason why, you know, we have an inclination to do this is because it's really weird to think about spiritual beings doing that to humans. But I mean, if we're being honest, if that's the weirdest thing that we're going to see in the Bible, then we clearly have not read another verse in the Bible. There there are some things that are far weirder than what happens. I think it's weird that there's a woman named Mary who the Holy Spirit just put a baby inside of her. Yeah, that's weird, okay? There are weird things that happen in the Bible. We live in a weird world and God's creation to our little puny human minds is very weird. But the phrase sons of God refers to spiritual beings throughout the Bible. Time and time again, it refers to spiritual beings or um, the the divine counsel. And it's the only thing that that makes sense in the context because it goes on to say in Genesis 6 that when this happened, they created Nephilim who were great warriors and the Nephilim were giants. Goliath was a part of the Nephilim. He was a giant. And so that's what verse 6 means if you're curious at all. You might not have been, but guess what I told you. Um, But so to go back on to... Verse five through six, he's giving us examples, these examples to remind us that God doesn't just let things slide, right? He doesn't just let things slide. And this is a a direct answer to what Jude was telling us these false teachers were saying. 
that you can just sin and sin and sin and, and live in a moral life because God's grace is just so abounding that you can abuse it. And Jude is telling us, hey, <laughs> did y'all forget about the fact that God led his people out of Egypt and he ended up slaughtering a bunch of Egyptian Egyptian soldiers who were trying to stop him? Did y'all forget that there were angels who sinned against God and he's chained them up for judgment? <laughs> like God's not going to just let things slide. And he continues on in verse 7. And don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. Now, now let me make something clear. This picture of God, right? This picture of God destroying people by fiery judgment and eternal fire. That's a hard pill to swallow for modern readers. That's really hard for us in our modern culture to swallow because we think to ourselves, how can a loving God cause so much destruction and have fiery judgment? It just doesn't seem right, right? Like like when you think about that, it's like, no, that doesn't make sense that a God who loves could bring such destruction. And it's really weird. You would think that this would be a, that this would be a common understanding throughout all humanity, but it's really not. It's recent. People in biblical times had no problem understanding this. They understood the necessity for judgment, even if they didn't like it. But this idea of if God is love, how can he also punish? How can he judge? This is something that's becoming really popular in our society today. And I think it can be destructive. It can lead us, it can lead us down the wrong roads if we're not careful. And there's many ways to explain how God can be love and a loving God, but also be a God that judges our sins. I mean, think about a loving parent. If you have kids or if you can idealize a loving parent, any parent that truly loves their child would not allow their child to do things that harm them. They would not allow their child to to break laws and to bring themselves self-harm. They would not allow their child to do that. They would discipline their child. They would correct them. They would judge their actions, not out of hate, not because they just wanted to see them suffer and be unhappy, but because they love them. And think about it like this. If he didn't punish and judge people for their evil, our world would be a complete disaster, a complete disaster. But I think the best way to understand this is not those two examples I just gave. I think it's just simply understanding how serious sin is in God's eyes. I mean, think about it. We really water down sin. And in our culture today, we water down what sin really is so much, especially in our individualistic society. How many times have either y'all said this phrase or heard someone say this? Don't judge me. I don't care what people think. You know, we'll always, here's the problem. If we continue to think of sin as just something that people want to hold over us. And if we continue to think that we can do whatever we want because we're we're our own person. We have to be our our own savior. We can do whatever we want. It doesn't matter what people think. You shouldn't shame me. You shouldn't try and make me feel bad for doing something wrong because it's my body. It's my choice. It's whatever I want to do. That's the idea that we've had. And we've watered down sin to where it's become almost praiseworthy in certain settings. Praiseworthy. We will praise people for committing sins 
if we think that it's okay or we think that we like it. And if we continue to look at sin as something that's not a big deal and it's okay, it's not that big of a deal, then we will always see God as this angry, childish judge who has a short temper, who just wants to punish everyone that he comes across. If we continue to look at sin as something that's not that big of a deal, then we're always going to put God in the seat of being wrong instead of ourselves. But that's not how God sees sin because God is perfect. God is good. He is moral in every single way possible. So anything that is not that is detestable to God. Anything that does not live up to God's goodness is evil. And that cannot be in God's presence. And far, far more often than what we realize is the sins that we commit don't just affect ourselves. It affects the people around us. So God sees this as a very serious thing. So when we see sin through the eyes of God, we don't have to look at him as some angry, evil, childish monster that just wants to take his anger out on people. We have to understand this. So verse eight, in the same way, these people who claim authority from their dreams live immoral lives defy authority, and scoff at supernatural beings. But even Michael, one of the mightiest of the angels, did not dare accuse the devil of blasphemy, but simply said, The Lord rebuke you. And this took place when Michael was arguing with the devil about Moses' body. Now, for for verses 8 through 9, I actually prefer reading from the NASB translation because it it gets to the actual original Greek a little bit better than what the New Living Translation does, and that's what I'm reading from right now. The NASB says this for verse 9. It says, But Michael the archangel, archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not pronounce against him an abusive judgment, but said the Lord rebuke you. I like this translation um, for one simple reason. It's the way that they correctly translate the word blasphemy. Because once again, in the New Living Translation, it says that he did not dare accuse the devil of blasphemy. And the Greek word for blasphemy blasphemy here is blasphemia, which means slander or evil speaking. And I point this out because it's easy to read, depending on your translation, it's easy to understand this and think that we're not supposed to call out the devil. <laughs> like, oh, snap. Michael, one of the mightiest angels, didn't even accuse the devil. Like he, he, he didn't even go there. So we should neither. But that's not what it's telling us. What it's telling us is that we should not pronounce abusive judgment. We should not pronounce slanderous judgment or speak evil when we are judging or correcting anybody, even the devil. Because if we did that, if we stooped to their level, then we will become the very thing that we're trying to fight against. And so Jude here is calling us to a higher standard. He's calling us to a higher standard. Why do you think that Jesus said, you know, there's no longer eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And he told us to turn the other cheek. He's not telling us to be a whipping board. He's not telling us to just roll over and take abuse and never defend ourselves. What he's saying is that we don't need to retaliate with the same actions that we hate. We don't need to retaliate the same way that our enemies attack against us. On to verse 10. 
But these people scoff at things they don't understand. Like unthinking animals, they do whatever their instincts tell them. And so they bring about their own destruction. What sorrow awaits them? For they follow in the footsteps of Cain, who killed his brother. Like Balaam, they deceive people for money. And like Korah, they perish in their rebellion. You know, we've been talking a lot about desires these these last few episodes of the podcast. And so far we've learned that desires can lead you to temptation. Desires if we're not careful, can lead you to believe that you're hearing from God. And now we're learning from Jude that our desires can lead us to our own destruction, can lead us to our own destruction. He gives examples like Cain, who killed his brother. He was mad and his desire was to let his brother have it. And because of that, it brought Cain and his whole line destruction and pain. And so he gives us some indicators that we can use to point out false teachers. And I think this is really helpful, and this is going to lead us into the second part of of what we're discussing here. He says, these people who claim authority from their dreams, they live immoral lives, they defy authority, and they scoff at supernatural beings. So these people live immoral lives, defy authority. This is important. Because if someone was truly renewed and being used by God to be his mouthpiece, to teach, to prophesy, they would be unable to understand the power and authority that God has. But these teachers didn't. They lived immoral lives, so they they didn't fear God. They defied authority, which means they didn't fear God, and they scoffed at supernatural beings, which means they didn't fear God. You know, I think sometimes... We can forget the importance of fearing God. We can forget how powerful God is. And this may make you uncomfortable, the idea of fearing God. It used to make me feel uncomfortable. Anytime I would explain to someone what the fear of God meant, I would be like, no, no, it doesn't mean being scared of God. It just means to respect God. That's what the fear of God truly means. But I feel like God has been been really helping my understanding of what the fear of the Lord truly means. And I think of it like this. If we truly comprehended the fact that there is a being outside of time and space, a being that is in a dimension of its own, a being that had the power to literally create everything we see in the universe, a universe that is so vast and so large that we haven't even gotten close to discovering a fraction of it. If there is a being that had the power to literally create you and in a snap, take the breath from your lungs. If there was a being who could do this, literally end your life and be fully justified and be fully right in doing so, maybe then, If we could comprehend a being like this, we would be more aware of his magnitude. We would be more aware of how important it is for us to honor and serve and love this being. I mean, it absolutely blows me away just thinking about God. God, he created everything you see. Every emotion you have. Every experience you have, he created you to be able to have those emotions and those experiences. There are things that 
that the, the brightest people on this planet can't even begin to comprehend. And there is a God outside of all reality that created this, that created you specifically. And it's clear time and time again in the Bible that this God, this supernatural being that created us has the ability and has the full moral authority and right to take it all away in an instant if he wanted to. How could we not be in immense awe and fear of this being if we're not living the way that that he has created us to live? I mean, it blows me away. It may be hard for you to comprehend this about God, right? It, it may be hard, but I like to think of it like this. Like imagine if there was some some alien ship that came onto our planet that had the ability to create life and just take it. Like you knew that this alien spaceship was just zapping people left and right. Like they could take your life in an instant. There was nothing you could do about it. You would be terrified. You would do whatever you could to, to, to do what that alien ship wanted so they would spare you. But we don't think about God that way. We take, we take God's immense power and authority for granted because he loves us. And we should be so glad that he loves us. You know, all he asks us to do is to love him and to love those made in his image. That's all he asks of us. And this is why I say fearing God is important. Because if we didn't fear God, if we didn't understand the power and authority he has over all creation, then we would have no reason to love or obey him. If God didn't have the power to create or to take life or to do any of this, we would have no reason to love or obey him because he couldn't judge us and he couldn't punish us. So the fear of God and the love of God go hand in hand. And I say all of this to say that the people who lived immoral lives defied authority and scoffed at supernatural beings clearly did not have the fear of God or the love for God that they needed to have. On to verse 12. When these people eat with you in your fellowships meals, commemorating the Lord's love, they're like dangerous reefs that can shipwreck you. They're like shameless shepherds who care only for themselves. They are like clouds blowing over the land without giving any rain. They're like trees in autumn. They are doubly dead, for they bear no fruit and have been pulled up by the roots. They're like wild waves of the sea, churning up the foam of their shameful deeds. They're like wandering stars doomed forever to blackest darkness. Now, here's where we can really see that Jude is writing for, for the large majority, he's writing to Jews. He's writing to Jews because here he uses some Old Testament imagery. And this would have been something that the Jewish people would have been expected to know and understand what he's talking about. And he's using this Old Testament imagery to describe the false teachers that he's talking about. The first one that we see is when he's talking about the shameless shepherds who care only for themselves. This comes from Ezekiel 34, 2. And it says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds, the leaders of Israel. Give them the message from the sovereign Lord. What sorrow awaits you, shepherds who feed yourselves instead of the flocks? Shouldn't shepherds feed their sheep? And he does the same thing when he talks about clouds blowing over the land, oh, blowing over the land without giving any rain. And this comes from Proverbs 25, verse 14. A person who promises a gift but doesn't give it is like clouds and wind that bring no rain. 
And then the last reference that he uses is in verse 13, when he says they are like wild waves of the sea, churning up the foam of their shameful deeds. And this comes from Isaiah 57, verse 20. But those who still reject me are like the restless sea, which is never still, but continually churns up mud and dirt. So on to verse 14, he continues some of this Jewish literature that, that he's expecting these people to understand. And he says in verse 14, Enoch, who lived in seventh generation after Adam, prophesied about these people. He said, listen, the Lord is coming with countless thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on the people of the world. He will convict every person of all the ungodly things they have done and for all the insults that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And so here he's quoting straight from the first book of Enoch. And you might be thinking, Dante, I can't, yo, I can't find the book of Enoch in my Bible. <laughs> Guess what? Me neither. <laughs> Enoch, if you didn't know, the book of Enoch, it was an ancient Hebrew religious text. It's not in our Bible. And it wasn't even in the, uh, the Jewish Torah. But it was clearly an influence and it gave some insight to biblical authors. This isn't the first time that the books of Enoch were quoted or referenced in Scripture. And don't ask me for more info on Enoch because honestly, <laughs> I don't know. It's something I got to study. But I wanted to point out that he was continuing to pull from Jewish literature to make his points about these false teachers. Now on to verse 16. He switches it up here. And instead of giving Old Testament references, he starts to reference uh, the New Testament. So, so we'll see this here. He says, these people are grumblers and complainers living only to satisfy their desires. They brag loudly about themselves and they flatter others to get what they want. Now, what he's saying here actually ties into second Timothy, uh, chapter four. And he says this, he says, we will no longer listen to sound teaching, but we will seek out teachers who tell us what our itching ears want to hear. This is important because what these false teachers that Jude is talking about, and even false teachers today, they want to they want to talk and preach about the things that they know you are wanting to hear. And once once you fall for that trap of only going to church so you can hear what you want to hear, so you can hear how you're forgiven, so you can hear how good of a person you are, once you only listen to people who will tell you what you want to hear, it's really easy to be manipulated. And I think that was part of the problem that's happening. Uh, in Jude. But on the verse 17, he says, But you, my dear friends, must remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ predicted. They told you that in the last times there would be scoffers whose purpose in life is to satisfy their ungodly desires. These people are the ones who are creating divisions among you. They follow their natural instincts because they do not have God's Spirit in them. So in these three verses, he's reference, referencing three different New Testament scriptures. He's referencing 2 Timothy 3, 1 John 4, and 2 Peter chapter 2. And so it's clear by now, from what Jude has been saying throughout this entire letter, that we really should be aware of false teaching. Like, like clearly, false teaching was on the radar of the apostles because they talked about it a decent amount. And we also need to be aware that false teaching is alive and well today. And we need to listen to what the apostles are telling us to look out for so we don't fall for the trap of false teaching. But on to verse 20, 
But you, dear friends, must build each other up in your most holy faith. Pray in the power of the Holy Spirit and await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ who will bring you eternal life. In this way, you will keep yourself safe in God's love. And you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy to still others, but do so with great caution, hating the sins that contaminate their lives. He's stressing the importance of building up the community around you, building up the people around you. And what is it? What is it? What do you have to have to be able to build up the community around you? You have to have a community. (laughs) You have to have people, friends, family that are close enough around you that you're able to discuss these things with. You know, one of the biggest lies that we can tell ourselves is that we are enough. I'm sure y'all have heard that. You are enough, girl. You can do it. You you enough, dude. All you need is yourself. You are strong. You are enough. Can I tell you something? If you are enough, then Jesus died for nothing. If you are strong enough to get through the trials of life on your own, then I guess the death of Jesus was a waste. Jesus didn't die because you were enough. He died because you are not enough. He died because you are incapable of saving yourself. You are incapable of being for yourself what you need Jesus to be for you. That's why Jesus died. So so no, you're not enough. That's why community is so important. That's why surrounding yourself with other people who follow Jesus Christ, it's crucial. And Jesus assumes that community is a part of the picture. Why else would he tell us to love our neighbor as ourself if we had no neighbors, if we had no people in our community to be able to love? I want to also look at verse 23. This is really interesting. He said, rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. This gives us a mandate. This gives us a mandate that's similar to the parable of the lost sheep. And that is to seek after those who are lost. Snatch them up. don't, Don't just sit by. And watch your loved ones go down a path of sin that's going to lead them to death. Don't just sit by and say, oh, well, you know, that's their decision. Oh, well, you know, (laughs) I tried. No, no, no. What did you say? He said, snatch them. What did Jesus say in the parable of the lost sheep? Leave the 99 other behind. And you do everything you can to go chase after the one who is lost. And that's the mandate that he's given us. And to finish it off, verse 24. Now all glory to God who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. All glory to him who alone is God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. All glory, majesty, power, and authority are his before all time and in the present and beyond all time. Amen. I don't have anything to add on to that. Jude ended this perfectly. What he said is so True, man. I hope y'all enjoyed this scripture study. I hope you learned something. I really do because I've learned some stuff. So I hope y'all learned some stuff as well. And I will catch y'all in next week's episode. All right. Y'all have a great rest of your day, night, evening. I don't know when you're listening, but have a great rest of your day. Peace out.